Hello everyone and welcome back to Clinical Conversations. I'm Johnny Bargett and I am a TMC member and today we are talking about thyroid disease and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rachel Williamson who is a consultant endocrinologist and consultant physician in general internal medicine in the Board of General in Melrose. Welcome Dr. Williamson. Thank you Johnny, it's really nice to be here. So why are we talking about thyroid disease? So thyroid disease is common. In fact, it's the most common group of endocrine conditions after diabetes, with a prevalence of thyroid dysfunction of anything up to around 2% in the UK population. Because it's common and presentations can be varied, thyroid abnormalities crop up in all sorts of other areas of medicine. And for example, in the last week, I've had thyroid referrals from the rapid access chest pain clinic, from ENT and from acute medicine, in addition from my referrals from the community. But more than that, the measurement of thyroid function tests is very common, both in the community and within hospitals. And it's important to be aware of the factors that can influence these, whether it be thyroid disorders or medications or other illnesses. So it seems like patients can present through any um, service in the hospital or the community. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. I think there, it's rare that there's a service who hasn't at some stage um, referred me somebody with thyroid function test abnormalities. So that's a good introduction to our conversation about the patient with a thyroid problem. And as you know, Rachel, the the podcast is aimed at our general medical trainees. And I'd like to set the scene for our trainees who work in the acute medical admissions units and the wards. And I was just wondering if we could just start by talking about patients who present with symptoms and signs of hypothyroidism in the acute medical unit. And just to get an idea about what your thoughts are on how we approach this problem or presentation in our patients. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to start just with a little bit of background about the thyroid gland, just so that you understand the background physiology. So the thyroid is a butterfly shaped gland that sits in the neck in which biologically active thyroid hormones T3 and T4 are synthesized from processes including iodination and are stored ready for release. And while all of circulating T4 is released from the thyroid, the majority of T3 is produced peripherally. The main function of thyroid hormone is metabolism and so control of metabolic rate. And thyroid hormone receptors are widespread in organs, including the heart, brain and musculoskeletal system. As in many endocrinological systems, hormone secretion is tightly regulated by a negative feedback loop. And thus small changes in circulating thyroid hormone levels feed back to the hypothalamus and pituitary, whose secretion of thyroid stimulating hormone known as TSH is adjusted to maintain that homeostasis. And so in thinking about disorders of the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, we broadly consider problems at the level of the thyroid gland itself. So primary thyroid disease, such as primary hypothyroidism or primary thyrotoxicosis, and alternatively problems with the regulation of the thyroid. So secondary hypo or hyperthyroidism, which would be due to hypothalamic or pituitary disease. And the pattern of these commonly measured thyroid function tests, so TSH, T4 and T3, help us to determine firstly if the thyroid is working normally or not, then whether or not it's over or underactive, and then the level of that problem, whether it be primary or secondary. So if, for example, we were thinking about hypothyroidism, as you can imagine, this can then be divided into either primary or secondary hypothyroidism. And primary hypothyroidism is the most common, affecting up to around 2% of the general population. And this starts with a rise in TSH. And as it progresses from subclinical or compensated hypothyroidism to avert hypothyroidism, 
the T4 falls. And by the time the T4 is low, you normally expect in that situation the TSH to be above 10. In your assessment of patients who you think might have primary hypothyroidism, you're going to look for symptoms of hypothyroidism. So that's things like weight gain, constipation, feeling the cold, dry skin, menorrhagia. You'd want to look at a history of thyroid treatment. So has the patient had thyroid surgery for nodular thyroid disease or have they had radioactive iodine therapy for Graves disease or toxic nodular disease? Are they on drugs that might affect the thyroid system? And we might actually come back to drugs a little bit later on because there are several interesting ones that we might want to think about. We'd look for a family history because autoimmune thyroid disease often runs in family. And in terms of examination, you'd be looking for signs of hypothyroidism, but also a goiter or, for example, a thyroid surgery scar. And when we're thinking about these primary hypothyroidism cases, the most common cause is autoimmune thyroid disease, such as Hashimoto's thyroiditis. But you can also have iatrogenic destruction of the thyroid gland, either by surgery or by radioiodine treatment, as we've mentioned. And drugs are a third category. So that's how I would generally approach that patient. That's a really helpful insight into just how to formulate your clinical impression and how your, your history taking is so important in assessing the etiology of the thyroid disease. And I, I guess the, the message that I'm getting through is that you can have a patient whose thyroid function is slowly deteriorating over time, but then there may be acute insults such as surgery that you've mentioned that can suddenly present. And I was just wondering if there's anything that we can do in preventing this in the community for our, for our GP colleagues as well. So I think in somebody who has got subclinical or compensated hypothyroidism with a high TSH level, but a normal free T4 level, these patients will generally be under ongoing follow-up in the community um, with thyroid function tests periodically, perhaps an initial repeat at three months, and then often will be under annual review if things are fairly stable. In terms of subclinical hypothyroidism, there are various groups of patients who we might actually consider treating with levothyroxine in order to either treat symptoms or prevent more overt hypothyroidism from, from occurring. So patients who have subclinical hypothyroidism with a TSH level of above 10 consistently, even if T4 is within normal range, we know that the chances are reasonably high that that patient will go on to develop overt hypothyroidism. And so treatment could be considered in those cases. Other groups of patients who we would treat would be pregnant women or people who were planning pregnancy, children or teenagers. And a final group is people who've got a TSH level that is between 5 and 10, but have got convincing symptoms of hypothyroidism and would like a therapeutic trial of levothyroxine. So yeah, I agree. These patients ideally should be gently monitored in the community to try to avoid really symptomatic overt hypothyroidism from sneaking up on us. That's really helpful just to get an idea about what happens before patients come into the hospital. And obviously prevention is better than the cures we've been talking about. I'm keen to not get too bogged down by the discussion about starting levothyroxine because I guess that's maybe something that you might think is more specialist or is that is that something that you would generally advise on uh, leaving to the specialist or to the community doctors, the GPs? 
rather than starting that acutely in, in the medical admissions unit? So I have to say that GPs in primary care are very, very used to starting levothyroxine with a community prevalence of around 2%. A lot of patients will start levothyroxine in the community. And in terms of whether levothyroxine should be started within the acute assessment unit, I think if somebody has clear, overt primary hypothyroidism, then I think it is reasonable to get on and treat. And for the patient who is otherwise fit and well and young or middle-aged, who has got overt primary hypothyroidism, the starting dose of levothyroxine as a ballpark would be 1.6 micrograms per kilogram. But I think if somebody has got more subtle thyroid hormone changes or if non-thyroidal illness is suspected, and we can maybe come on to talk a little bit about that a bit later on, then I think repeat tests in the community and GP follow-up would be appropriate. There's a specific group that it's maybe worthwhile just mentioning, which is people who have secondary or central hypothyroidism, which is much rarer and is due to hypothalamic or pituitary disease or their treatment with pituitary adenoma being the most common cause. And biochemically, you would recognize that group by a low T4 in association with a TSH that has not risen appropriately, i.e. the negative feedback loop has broken down and the TSH is inappropriately low or normal. And it's exceptionally important to recognize this pattern as pituitary disease is commonly associated with other hormonal deficiencies. And in this setting, we would be particularly worried about the possibility of associated ACTH and cortisol deficiency. And in the setting of secondary hypothyroidism, it's important to realise that levothyroxine must not be started until either you're sure that the patient is cortisol replete or has been given hydrocortisone. That's a really helpful piece of advice, Rachel. And I guess that leads me on to my next question. And really, I'd like to get talking about some cases, if that's okay. Mm. And one of, one of the things that I'm sure a lot of our dental medical colleagues would be used to seeing is referrals of patients who'd come in with perhaps lethargy or symptoms of hypothermia, with maybe an associated bradycardia, um, with worsening edema. And I'm specifically thinking about presentations with overt hypothyroidism as a differential of, of a potential myxedema coma or something on that spectrum of, of hypothyroid disease. And I'm just wondering what your approach to this kind of patient would be and, and just how we can help our general medical trainees at the front door to think about this differential, but also knowing what to do in that situation. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very good question. I think the first thing to say is that the vast majority of patients with hypothyroidism are picked up and treated in primary care. And most even biochemically profound hypothyroidism can be safely managed in the community. If we take the modestly unwell patient who maybe has come into hospital, but is, you know, able to sit up having their cup of tea in the morning, is you know, reasonably well in them in themselves, who's found to have um, avert hypothyroidism, then often by definition, this might well be a slightly older, slightly frailer cohort. And I think a gradual starting of levothyroxine, as we discussed before, in those patients would be appropriate. And if you're worried, then kind of endocrine advice can be, can be sought. In terms of decompensated hypothyroidism, myxedema coma is now thankfully rare. And most endocrinologists actually deal with only a small handful in their careers. And that's generally a culmination of long-standing 
un or under treated hypothyroidism, often with an acute precipitant such as infection or myocardial infarction or exposure to the cold or new use of particular sedative medications such as opiates. And that is a diagnosis that should be considered in the confused, lethargic and obtunded patient with hypothermia who may or may not have other features such as bradycardia, hypotension, hypoventilation, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia. Despite its name, myxedema coma, patients don't actually need to be fully comatose or in a coma to gain the diagnosis. And my last patient was interesting. She was a kind of fairly classic patient in that she was an older female patient. She was quite stoical. She didn't like bothering her GP. She presented in the middle of the winter, which is the classic time for myxedema coma to present. And she was confused and obtunded with undiagnosed hypothyroidism. And she'd come from a household where apparently her husband really hated having heating on. So she came from a very cold place and she had a superimposed pneumonia. So there was an obvious precipitant there. And so if you are dealing particularly with an older patient who is obtunded with hypothermia, you might look for these other features and also look for clues. So you might, for example, note that this is a patient who's got hypothyroidism who hasn't actually picked up their levothyroxine according to your ECS for the last three or four months. Or they might have a thyroidectomy scar as a clue that there's some underlying hypothyroidism there. That's really useful. And I guess just for our listeners, it'd be useful just to get a discussion about the half-life of levothyroxine. Because that's something that we may not we all know. But if someone, a patient has come in and they've said they haven't taken their levothyroxine for weeks, is that something that needs urgently restarted? Or is that something that we can just say, well, that's fine. Here's the dose that you'll restart on. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so the half-life of levothyroxine is around seven days. So actually, an occasional missed dose isn't a big deal. And one group of patients where people sometimes get a bit worried is a patient who maybe comes in with slightly suboptimal swallow and is made nil by mouth for 24 hours while we get a speech and language therapy input. And people worry about them not getting that their levothyroxine for that period of time. And that very brief break isn't going to cause a big issue if people have been compliant up until the time of admission. But for somebody who's been off their levothyroxine for a number of weeks, the chances are that their thyroid hormone levels will be back to their usual baseline. And I would simply kind of do the same as I would for somebody who um, had a new diagnosis. So if it was a young patient, then I think you can probably just restart the usual dose, whereas an older patient, you might want to titrate up a bit more slowly to prevent side effects. That's really helpful. You mentioned autoimmune disease and viral or infective thyroid disease. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on recognising that in the patient that presents to AMU, for example. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. So within hypothyroidism, um, it's Hashimoto's thyroiditis um, rather than a viral thyroiditis that you might be looking at. And I think it is if we were going to chat a bit more about viral conditions of the thyroid gland, that would maybe be a little bit more under the heading of thyrotoxicosis which we can come on to either now or after we've finished with hypothyroidism, if there's anything else that we want to chat about with that. Yeah, I think the things that I'd like to sort of wrap up before we start moving on to hyperthyroidism, 
would be, is there anything else that we can do to screen for hypothyroidism um, while we're in the hospital? We, we talk about routine TFTs as part of a, a confusion screen, so to speak. Is that something that you would advise or do you have any other thoughts on that? So that's, that's a really interesting question. So in general, I think an attendance in the acute receiving unit is actually a really bad time for indiscriminate screening. And even in those patients in whom annual screening is important, such as somebody with type 1 diabetes, for example, that's better done at a time when they are well. And that's because acute illness itself causes alterations in thyroid function tests, even in people who are clinically euthyroid. And that's a process known as non-thyroidal illness, previously known as sick euthyroid syndrome. And this is a process that's probably adaptive to prevent excessive catabolism in acute illness. And for this reason, it's recommended really not to test thyroid function in patients who are unwell for other reasons, unless you've got a high clinical suspicion of thyroid dysfunction or you think that an acute illness is caused by thyroid disease. However, I do accept that it's reasonable to screen for thyrotoxicosis in new atrial fibrillation, and both the SIGN and the NICE guidelines for delirium support their use in people with delirium, although I'm not sure that the evidence base in that group of patients is particularly strong. And so it's difficult for me to, as a, as a thyroid doctor, to say, don't do these things that are in national guidelines. And so I guess my feeling would be if thyroid function tests are measured according to these guidelines, I think the important thing is that doctors are aware that if you get funny thyroid function tests in the context of an acute illness, that might be part of this non-thyroidal illness presentation and actually repeating the test rather than acting on them might be the way forward. That's really helpful advice. And I guess now we've already started talking about hyperthyroidism. What kind of presentations do we see in patients who have hyperthyroidism? Yes, yeah, so again, most patients with avert thyrotoxicosis are picked up in the community, usually because of presentation to general practice with suggestive symptoms such as weight loss, heat intolerance, palpitations, changes in mood or sleep, etc. From personal experience, the group who are picked up in the acute receiving unit are slightly different in that I think commonly there are patients who have presented either with new atrial fibrillation or with palpitations or have been picked up almost incidentally. So it's not that uncommon for us to see particularly subclinical thyrotoxicosis in a patient who has had their delirium screen done, but actually their delirium is now better after treatment of a clear underlying cause. And probably their subclinical thyrotoxicosis didn't have anything to do with their initial delirium. So it's almost a kind of incidental pickup. If you're then assessing patients who um, have got biochemical signs of thyrotoxicosis, it's helpful to look for the, the symptoms and signs of thyrotoxicosis. So that's obviously the opposite to hypothyroidism. So it's things like weight loss, heat intolerance, oligo or amenorrhea in younger patients, diarrhea rather than constipation, or at least frequency of stool. Avert diarrhea is a little bit less common, sweatiness and tremor. And then it's really helpful if you can focus in on the aspects that might help with teasing apart the underlying cause. So that might be looking at whether somebody is postpartum, in which case they will have an increased risk of both thyroiditis and Graves' disease. And we can come on to the underlying differential diagnosis of thyrotoxicosis in a little minute. A drug history, and we might have time to come back to particular medications later on. 
Family history, again, autoimmune thyroid disease often runs in families. Thyroid pain or tenderness, which might suggest an underlying thyroiditis. The presence and texture of a goiter. So is there a smooth, symmetrical goiter with a brie, which might suggest grave disease? Or can you actually feel an individual nodule or multinodular goiter? And then there are some signs that might be pathomonic of Graves' disease, such as dysthyroid eye disease or pretabial myxedema, the latter being pretty uncommon. But thyroid eye disease is present in anything from around a fifth to a third of patients with Graves' disease. The last patient who presented to me via MAU was picked up on thyroid function tests done due to atrial fibrillation with a fast rate. And she was in her early 50s with a really significant family history of autoimmune thyroid disease. I think she was the third of three sisters to get Graves disease. And she had a smooth symmetrical goiter. So even before we did her confirmatory testing, I was pretty confident that her thyrotoxicosis was going to be due to Graves disease rather than another cause. From what you're saying, it sounds like usually these patients have had some kind of healthcare input before they, they do present or... Not necessarily. I mean, I think the majority of patients who present with thyrotoxicosis are just picked up and treated in the community and they don't come anywhere near the front door of the hospital. They come directly from their GP surgery and are seen subsequently in the endocrine clinic. But I think there are a subgroup of patients who are not known to have any thyroid disease that's not on anybody's radar, but who then present either with palpitations or with fast atrial fibrillation. That's great. So we've talked about grave disease and we've, we've touched on multinodular goiter or toxic nodular goiter. How, how can the front door clinicians help tease apart that, that diagnosis other than what we've talked about, about you know, thyroid gland being enlarged or physically feeling a palpable nodule? What would help the clinician in helping you as the specialist? What a brilliant question. Thank you for that, Johnny. So I think the main things that I would say is apart from um, trying to kind of be quite targeted in your assessment um, with a view to trying to pick up those clinical features that are going to help. The main thing is actually if you can make sure that a T3 level and a TRAB antibody level are added on to the admission blood tests. And so then you'll have the full set of TSH, T4, T3 and TRABs um, in order for us to be able to move forward. That's actually probably the main thing to do from from the front door. And there's then, in essence, if somebody has a high TRAB antibody level, then we can be pretty confident that that is Graves' disease and that diagnosis is then made and we don't have to do too much else in the way of diagnostics. Whereas if the TRAB antibody level is low, then that opens up still the full differential diagnosis. So it could still be TRAB negative Graves' disease. So 5% of patients with Graves' disease have negative TRAB antibodies. It could be thyroiditis, and I'll just touch briefly on that because I think you'd asked about that previously. So thyroiditis is inflammation which releases the stores of preformed thyroid hormone into the circulation. And I guess at the front door, that's most likely to present as a viral thyroiditis. And things that might point you in that direction are a kind of viral prodrome and neck pain or tenderness, which is actually reasonably uncommon um, in other forms of thyrotoxicosis. Thyroiditis can be due to viral infection or can occur postpartum or can be due to particular medications, including amiodrone. 
And it's different from um, Graves' disease and nod toxic nodular um, thyroid disease in that it is generally self-limiting. And so you don't need to start disease-modifying agents specifically to help, although some patients will benefit symptomatically from either non-steroidals or steroids. It's generally self-limiting and is destructive as it, as it settles. And so you get this classic pattern of a thyrotoxic phase followed by hypothyroidism because the cells in the thyroid gland have been damaged by the inflammatory process. And then most but not all patients over a period of months, the thyroid gland gradually comes back to normal. But there are occasional patients who are left with long-standing hypothyroidism as a result of their thyroiditis. That's a really useful summary. And I, I guess um, that's what I was alluding to earlier on about you know, can, can patients present in the hypothyroid phase of a thyroiditis? They can. Most of the time, people, if they've been picked up in the thyrotoxic phase, their thyroid function test will be being monitored. But you're right. Sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes patients present to their GP, for example, in the postpartum state, having felt a bit jittery and having lost a little bit of weight. And actually, by the time they get to their GP, and are seen and actually have their thyroid function test done, it's a few weeks down the line and they're overtly hypothyroid at that stage. The thyrotoxic phase can be quite fleeting and it's not always picked up. That's really interesting. You mentioned amiodarone. Can we talk about that particular drug above all other drugs? <laughs> we absolutely can. I know that yeah. um, we obviously we should check thyroid function tests before we start this drug. I guess just before we talk about the mechanisms of it, how it causes thyroid disease, is that something that uh, we should do as an absolute necessity or in the, in the acute circumstances it may not be possible? What are your thoughts on that? I think I would, um, if you're going to be starting amiodarone, clearly if somebody is in ventricular tachycardia and you're needing to start intravenous um, amiodarone, that is a different, it's a different setting, isn't it, to starting tablet amiodarone in a more controlled setting. So I think what I would say is in the acute setting, you don't need to see the results of the thyroid function tests before you start, but I would recommend that they are added on to the admission blood um, so that you've got a starting point. And then kind of normally I would say three set of thyroid function tests at three months, and then I think it's normally about six monthly thereafter the BNF recommends for amiodarone monitoring of thyroid function tests. Really helpful. And, and so my next question is, of course, there, there are different mechanisms of amiodarone thyroid disease. Is that something that the acute medical doctor or the, the general medical doctor in the AMU needs to, to really to pay attention to? Or is that something that's more specialist? I think it's helpful for people to know what we expect to happen to the thyroid function tests when somebody starts amiodarone so that abnormalities don't cause undue alarm and we can maybe just chat a little bit about that in a minute. In terms of abnormalities precipitated by amiodarone, hypothyroidism is reasonably easily dealt with. I think thyrotoxicosis 
I would want endocrinology input into. And I generally do feel a little bit twitched about thyrotoxicosis in the context of amiodrone because these are patients who almost by definition don't have structurally normal hearts. I prefer to get on top of things as, as quickly as possible. And we can briefly chat through a couple of the mechanisms for both thyrotoxicosis and hypothyroidism. Would it be helpful for me just to run through what happens to the thyroid function tests as expected when somebody goes on to amiodrone initially? Please do. So just to give you a little bit of background, amiodrone is an iodine-rich drug. And you'll remember me saying right back at the beginning that in the physiology of the thyroid gland, one of the processes that happens within the thyroid gland is iodination. And amiodrone at a dose of 200 milligrams daily increases people's daily iodine intake probably around 20-fold for most individuals. So it's a big repeated iodine load. And thus, it's really a test of the physiological processes that take place within the thyroid gland. And normal thyroid glands will autoregulate this iodine and thus prevent people from becoming thyrotoxic after an iodine load. And thyroid hormone synthesis in these patients is transiently inhibited until intrathyroidal stores of, of iodine return to normal levels. And so there is some mild perturbation of thyroid hormone levels, which usually settles by around three to six months. And within the first few weeks, there is a rise in T4, but a fall in T3 due to the direct inhibition of deiodination in the periphery and TSH rises. But by around three to six months, TSH normalizes. T4 generally settles to the upper end of normal range or can be slightly high, and that's considered within the realms of normality. And T3 normally settles to being low normal. And so you should check TFTs at baseline and at least six monthly afterwards, but be aware that there's the possibility of amiodarone-induced dysfunction. And so thyroid function tests should be checked if somebody presents with symptomatic thyroid disease in the meantime. If we then just think a little bit about how amiodrone feeds into the kind of amiodrone-induced thyroid abnormalities, so hypothyroidism occurs if the thyroid gland fails to escape from that autoregulatory process. And in the UK, which is an iodine-replete country, hypothyroidism is the more common amiodrone-induced disorder. And it can occur actually in up to around 20% of people treated with amiodrone but is reasonably easily treated in that as per anyone else who develops primary hypothyroidism, we can simply start levothyroxine in these patients. And amiodrone-induced hypothyroidism does not usually necessitate stopping amiodrone. Um, so it's the easier condition to deal with. In the UK, amiodrone-induced hyperthyroidism um, is less common, but it does definitely happen. And as I said before, the combination of thyrotoxicosis and significant heart disease is just a potentially slightly higher risk scenario. I'm not saying that these patients need to be managed as an inpatient. And in fact, I think I've managed the significant majority of amiodrone-induced thyrotoxicosis that I've seen as outpatients. They're patients I'd prefer to see sooner rather than later in the endocrine outpatient setting. Just briefly, there are two types. In type 1, amiodrone-induced thyrotoxicosis, the increased iodine load essentially overcomes the process of autoregulation and essentially feeds a thyrotoxic state. And there's usually underlying nodular or less commonly Graves disease there. And this form of amiodrone-induced thyrotoxicosis can be treated with antithyroid drugs such as carbimazole. 
And then amiodarone-induced thyrotoxicosis type 2 is a thyroiditis picture, which is caused by direct toxicity to the thyroid gland. And that can be treated with steroids. Either way, we would discuss with cardiology whether there are options to discontinue the drug. But even if there are, that's not always a quick fix because the half-life of amiodarone is 100 days. So its effects can continue on for a long period of time after you stop it. That's really helpful. That's, that's great information that I'm certainly sure our general medical trainees and, and everybody else who's listening will find um, really useful. I'm, I'm keen not to talk about pregnancy too much, but um, would it be possible to discuss any, any common presentations of thyroid disease in our obstetric area of general medicine? As a general medical registrar, you never know what kind of calls you might get from, from obstetrics, but when you do, occasionally it could be regarding thyroid disease. And I guess I was just wanting to gain your thoughts on, on how to handle that situation in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And because of the peak age and female preponderance of autoimmune thyroid disease, it's common to see women who are pregnant or planning pregnancy who have either Graves disease or hypothyroidism. As you alluded to, thyroid disease and pregnancy is a big topic. But I think that the main messages probably fall into three categories. Firstly, women with pre-existing hypothyroidism or levothyroxine should be advised to independently increase their dose of levothyroxine by around 20 to 30% at the time of a positive pregnancy test. And in most cases, that equates to an increase of around 25 to 50 micrograms daily. Or an alternative way of looking at it is taking an extra two doses of your usual dose each week. A second group is women who've got pre-existing Graves' disease on antithyroid drug therapy. And we advise that these women should plan pregnancy with their endocrinologist to ensure that thyroid function tests are appropriately controlled on minimum possible doses of medication. And consideration might be given to switching from carbimazole to propylthiuracil for the first trimester. And these women will be monitored by endocrinology and obstetrics through pregnancy with attention to thyroid function test control, TRAB antibody levels and fetal growth. And then the third group, which I guess is maybe the group that you might find yourself contacted about, is a patient who presents to the obstetricians with a new biochemical thyrotoxicosis in the first trimester. And the differential diagnosis in these women is really twofold. So firstly, this could be a new presentation of Graves' disease, or it could be an effect of HCG, which is obviously high in pregnancy. And HCG actually shares a subunit with TSH, and therefore it has thyrotrophic activity. There are several situations in which HCG might be particularly high and multiple pregnancy is one such. But the classic situation is a patient who's got hyperemesis of pregnancy because that is associated with statistically higher HCG levels. And up to around 60% of such patients will have a biochemical picture of thyrotoxicosis. I would say realistically that any woman who presents the obstetricians with new thyrotoxicosis should have endocrine input. It's really helpful if a TRAB antibody level can be added onto their blood test because that can be helpful in teasing apart whether this is thyrotoxicosis due to HCG versus Graves' disease. If it's due to HCG, then the treatment is really supportive treatment of the hyperemesis. 
and you can consider beta blockers in some patients, but you wouldn't normally start antithyroid drug therapy because things will gradually settle as patients get into the second trimester. Whereas in the context of Graves' disease, there will be decisions to be made regarding antithyroid drug treatment, etc. But I would personally, as an endocrinologist, I would want to be involved in those decisions. Quite right, quite right. That's been a, a whistle-stop tour on thyroid disease. And I'm keen to just your thoughts on your sort of take-home messages or top tips for our medical trainees uh, before we wrap things up. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think in terms of top tips for the medical registrar who deals with thyroid referrals, I guess one is that as long as the patient is medically stable, try not to be too spooked by the biochemistry because the vast majority of patients with even profound biochemical abnormalities, if they are stable, then they can usually be safely managed as an outpatient. And there's often even time, if you're not quite sure what to do about the thyroid function test, to get some endocrine advice, whether that's the same evening or the following morning. Conversely, in the sick patient who's either comatose and hypothermic or alternatively agitated and hyperpyrexic, do consider the life-threatening manifestations of thyroid diseases. And endocrinologists are usually reasonable people who are interested in their field and don't mind if you ask if you and your team aren't sure to interpret a set of thyroid blood tests. And in terms of take-home messages more clinically, um, I guess I would say remember to expect that most thyroid function tests will fall into the primary hypo or primary hyperthyroidism pattern and try and be alert to patterns that don't quite fit into this rule. Remember, non-thyroidal illness as a cause of funny thyroid function tests as inpatients. Take a thorough drug history. And although we did chat a little bit about amiodrone, we don't have time to go into some of the other medications that can affect the thyroid. But I would just maybe highlight that some of the newer cancer immunotherapies can unmask or precipitate various endocrinopathies mainly thyroid disease, but also other conditions such as Addison's or hypophysitis or even type 1 diabetes. And there are some monoclonal antibodies such as alemtuzumab, which is used for MS, which can cause Graves' disease or, or less commonly hypothyroidism. So it's important to be alert for these drugs that might not actually be on the ECS because they've either been given as an infusion or they're being given from the cancer centre, for example. Two final points. In secondary hypothyroidism, you must ensure that a patient is glucocorticoid replete before you start levothyroxine. And we discussed that a little bit earlier. And in a patient who comes into hospital who is on carbamazole for thyrotoxicosis, it's really important that you remember if that patient has presented with fever, sore throat or mouth ulcers, that there is a significant, a small but serious risk of agranulocytosis with that medication. And so an urgent full blood count would be appropriate. That is great stuff. And it's been an absolute pleasure to chat about thyroid disease with you, Dr. Williamson. And I just to say thank you for, for joining me. And thank you for, for listening, everyone. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Not a problem. And for those who want to give any feedback, please do comment on the Twitter feed or the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website um, or the EMUs. And we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Wilson. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Clinical Conversations, then please book now for the RCPE Symposium on 100 Years of Insulin. This will take place on the 28th of January 2022. This will be a jam-packed symposium covering the history of insulin, its use throughout the years, and its use in management in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We look forward to seeing you in the near future. Thank you.